Good morning. Welcome to Southland City Church. My name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, we're thrilled that you are here. We're honored for um, every life in the room. But today I'm especially excited. We have a few more kids in the room with us than normal. Are you guys pumped about that? Yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, hey, if you're one of the kids in the room and you usually find yourself on the other side of the curtain in one of those other rooms, we just want you to know that we love you and we're thrilled that you're with us today. Uh, I also want to celebrate, um, you know, most Sundays what happens is we adults, we come to this side of the curtain. I know, right? We come to this side of the Good snag, by the way, Mom. That was, that was very impressive. We adults, we come to this side of the curtain. We enjoy this sort of luxurious, bougie, hipster sort of experience. Perhaps not remembering that just on the other side of that curtain, in those rooms, an army of volunteers are working really hard to serve our families and our kids. So it's a good day to say thanks to them, right? Yeah. Cool. Now, we've been talking about one of the ideas that has been central to this community from its beginning, and we articulate it in one of our mantras, which is everyone an icon. It's illustrated up there in the far right corner there. Uh, this, as a reminder, comes from the early pages of Scripture where God is creating humanity, and we read there that God says, let's make men and women in our image. We've talked about the fact that in the ancient world, it wasn't a new idea that a person could bear the image of God. You can find other places in the ancient world where cultures celebrated people bearing the image of God, except all the other places that you find it, the one thing you find is that the king bears the image of God and no one else. So when Genesis 1 comes along and says, let us make men and women, all of them, to bear the image of God, it's this big, expansive gift, and it says something new about all of humanity, that every single person is a bearer of the image of God. Everyone a sacred image, everyone an icon. Now, we've talked about the fact that hopefully this means something for your assessment of your own dignity. That like, like, like when you think about what it means for you to be you, I hope that you lift your head a little bit, that you, your shoulders come back and your chest expands and you, and you feel someplace deep inside. It's good for you to be you. God has delighted in the fact that you are you. And we also hope that it calls us to see the dignity in other people, especially the people where we have the hardest time seeing their dignity, right? to sense the, the sacred weight of every life that we encounter. We've also talked about creativity, how when you get to that point in Genesis 1, where men and women are called bearers of the image of God, we talked about how one thing that we know about God at that point in the story is that God is endlessly creative. And we don't mean artistic in the narrow sense. We mean in the same way that every human being has a chance to get their hands on the raw materials of this world and fashion something beautiful. And the raw materials might be actual matter. You might have your hands on wood or cloth or some kind of physical material, or it might be the way that you work the spreadsheets, or it might be the lives that you impact around you. But we all have this creative potential to move this world toward greater life and flourishing and beauty. So to say everyone an icon is to say everyone is here to be a creator in some sense. We've also talked about the peculiar idea in the scriptures, that God is somehow... Uh, trinity or community or relationship, that it's actually inherent in God, that relationship is there. And if that's true, then we cannot bear the image of God alone. We talked about community and the way that it's central to this calling on humanity, right? Well, today we want to keep working this out, and today we want to keep asking a, a question that has revolved around this big idea, which is, if we are here to bear the image of God, to live like God, to look like God, and so, if there's something that's true of God that's true of us, or that's supposed to be true of us, well then we should ask, what is God like? Because it doesn't do much good to talk about bearing the image of God if we don't know what God is like, right? 
And today I also want to observe, I think you can't help but live into the image of God that you have in mind. Or maybe the image isn't in mind, maybe it's in body and soul, maybe it's buried somewhere deep in your psyche, but I actually think you can't help but live toward what you think God is like. And sometimes you don't even realize what you think God is like until it surprises you or it comes out of your mouth in some circumstance or moment, right? So for example, a little while ago, a few years ago, I was at a restaurant in town which shall not be named. Great restaurant, one of my favorite restaurants, love this place. But I'm, I'm there, and, uh, and while I'm eating lunch with my friends, uh, the, the restaurant is owned by husband and wife, and the wife comes up, and she starts telling me about how her husband has started coming to the church that I'm a part of working at at the time, and how her husband's life has been so radically changed by his experience there. She starts talking about how he is growing and he's becoming more loving and he's been awakened and how he's figuring out the Jesus thing and she's celebrating all this. And by the way, while she's telling me this about her husband, I'm thinking I had some indication of that because a few weeks earlier, I was at the same restaurant for lunch with my friends and the guy, the husband, who also owns the restaurant, he sees me from across the restaurant and he has this urgent sort of excited look on his face and he calls out to me across several tables in the restaurant. Well, so everybody's noticing now. He says, Pastor, I forgot to tithe this week. So he goes to the cash register, hits the, the, the drawer button, and just starts pulling wads of cash out of the cash register, carries it over to me as the restaurant watches, and he says, this is for God. <laughs> Which later got me a talking to by the church's finance director when he sat me down in my office and said, Jason, you're not supposed to take money for God. <laughs> so I knew something was going on in this guy's life. And his wife is telling me about this change that's happening in him and how he's opening his heart to, to, to God in his life and how all this is wrapped around his experience of Jesus and our church. And then she tells me, baptism's coming, isn't it? I said, yeah, it is. And I think I know where this is going. She says, yeah, baptism's coming. And he wants to get baptized. And before I can open my mouth and say, that's awesome, she cuts me off and she says, but don't worry, I told him he has more work to do first. <laughs> I know, does your heart hurt a little bit right now? You kind of feel that sadness inside? Oh, no. Where did that come from? Her husband is like living this experience of opening and awakening and encounter with God. He seems to be discovering in some important way that he belongs with God. And baptism is a sacrament or sacred ritual of en en enacting that belonging, of saying, yeah, I'm saying yes to this. My heart's open to this. I belong with God. All that's happening in real time for her, and he says he wants to get baptized, and she says, no, you've got to prove more than you've proven yet. You've got to do more to earn this thing. Where, where does that come from? I, I actually think a lot of us carry around something like that in our bones, in our bodies, in our souls, in our psyche, somewhere deep inside, in spite of the fact that we tell stories about Jesus, who is always healing and including and moving toward his beloved friends, like even though we tell these stories all day long, somehow in spite of that, so many of us have got this buried deep inside. Maybe it's something explicitly about the nature of God, that God is like against you, mostly. That God's offended by you, mostly. That most of the time, God's posture toward you is negative or angry or malevolent, like that that's actually the baseline. And by the way, if God's not a word that works for you, you might still be carrying around in your psyche, in your bones, in your body, some deep anxiety about the bedrock underneath everything and whether it's good or bad, whether it's trustworthy or untrustworthy, whether it's for you or against you. And I, I just want to ask, like, where does that come from? 
And why is it that so many of us are actually living out of a deep anxiety about the nature of that ultimate reality that some of us here call God? Like, where does that come from, and what do we do about it? Well, I want to... Um, I want to argue that it probably comes from a lot of places, but one of the places that deep anxiety can come from is from really well-intended bad preaching. And I, I want to suggest that a lot of us have actually heard the message that God is mostly against you. And then 2,000 years ago, he had a good day, and its name was Jesus. But mostly God is against you. And in this way of telling the story, Jesus is an exception to God, not the revelation of God. In this way of telling the story, like, God is mostly against you, but thank God God found a loophole. And it's a really tight, narrow little loophole, but if you can work the loophole, you might just barely be okay, and you're going to get by, by the skin of your teeth. But mostly God is against you, and you've got something to be terrified of and the nature of that ultimate reality that we call God. I think a lot of us have heard preaching that basically adds up to that message or a big idea. Now today I, I want to I poke around on that a little bit. I want to see if what we've heard is actually what the story is saying. And so to do that, I want to go to one of the places in the Bible where I think a lot of us have been told that's where the bad news is. I want to go to one of the places in the Bible where I think a lot of us have been told, see, there is a picture of a God who is really, really difficult to please and you better be on your A game, because otherwise he's coming for you and it's not going to be good. I want to go to one of those places in the scripture and just ask if that's really what's going on. So I often ask this question, but today we're going to do some work. You guys up for some work? Yeah. Okay, good. Because Oh, yes, excellent, good. Uh, cool. So the place that I want to turn to is specifically the giving of the law. So if you have a little bit of Bible in you, if you flip through those pages before, you might know there's that moment in Exodus 20 where Moses goes up to the mountain and God gives Moses the law. It starts with the Ten Commandments and then it goes on for roughly another 603 commandments, depending on how you count them up, to something like 613 thou shalts and thou shalt nots. Maybe you've been bored one day and you flipped to Exodus or Leviticus or Deuteronomy and you stumbled into a bunch of thou shalts and thou shalt nots. And it feels like this is a God who has a lot of very strong and particular opinions about the strangest nuances of our life, like whether you eat shellfish and whether your clothes match and whether you're planting two different kind of crops in the field. And he has feelings about body fluids and all sorts of other stuff. Anybody been to that part in the Bible and felt like this is not only weird, but it feels sort of alarming? Like, like, one way of reading that is, I can't find a better word than this, that God is um, persnickety. <laughs> Strangely uh, concerned about these details. And it seems that, that you have been set up to fail. Because who could, who could live up to all of the thou shalt and the thou shalt nots? And so there's a way of reading this text that starts in Exodus 20 with the giving of the law and goes on and on and on and on. There's a way of reading that as saying, like, that's where the bad news is, and that's what God is mostly like. He's against you. He set up a, a scheme of rules that are so complicated and problematic that you're just going to fail, and he's almost like looking for you to fail. And then, thank God, he created a loophole. Has anybody ever heard something kind of like that before? Felt that before? Yeah. Well, here's the thing. I want to look at this text uh, through the lens of some good historical scholarship. And one of the things that a good scholar will do when they're trying to understand what the text means is they'll ask, is this a certain form or genre of literature? Because it's hard to know what it means if you don't know what genre or form it is. So like, for example, you know, if you read the lyrics of a pop song, you just understand that a pop song lyric communicates meaning differently than a legal document, right? Those are very different things. You understand that a poem is different than a newspaper article. 
right? And the things that a poet gets away with, if a, if a journalist tried to write in the same voice and in the same way, we'd say, that's very bad journalism, right? <laughs> but it might be very good poetry, right? So genre and form really matter. Now, I'm going to argue that, uh, that the law, the giving of the law, that whole sort of body of things is a certain kind of literature. By this way, this is not my argument. This is what most good scholars see when they look at this text. So if you're going to figure out what kind of form or genre is the text so you can understand what it means, you might, for example, ask questions about context and content. Because context and content might tell you a little something about the form or genre that you're working with. If you can figure that out, you might learn something about what this text actually means. For example, what if the context is February 14th, and what if I hand you a document whose content begins, roses are red, violets are blue? Well, what have I just given you? A valentine. That's, this, is not, this is not the hard part, guys. That, that comes later. <laughs> I've handed you a valentine, right? Good. I've handed you a valentine. And if I've handed you a valentine, then what does it mean? Love, no, it means this. I bought in hook, line, and sinker to a fabricated holiday created by the greeting card industrial complex that turns the sacred heroin experience of romantic love into a sweet saccharine, pastel-colored, chocolate-filled, lifetime made-for-TV movie-style explosion of sentimental consumerism. Amen? <laughs> I might have some baggage around Valentine's Day. <laughs> of course it means I love you, or I have a crush on you, or I feel some affection for you. And context and content told you what form of document you've received, and knowing what form of document you received helped you understand what it meant, right? This is actually the kind of thing that we do all the time. You can do the same kind of work on these strange, interesting, historical, biblical texts. You can do that work on the text that begins in Exodus 20 with the giving of the law, when Moses goes up the mountain and he gets the Ten Commandments and then another 603 commandments, and all the thou shalt and thou shalt nots end up there, right? So when you do that same kind of analysis and you look at context and content on the law, you find out that this is a very particular kind of document that existed in the ancient world. And there's a name for this kind of document, and it comes from words for two different parties in an agreement. So we're going to do a little vocabulary. Hang with me. The words are suzerain and vassal. Let's try suzerain. Say that on three. One, two, three. Suzerain. Yeah. And then vassal. That's an easy one. On three. One, two, three. Yeah, suzerain and vassal, these are names for two different parties in a contract or a treaty or an agreement of sorts. So in the ancient world, uh, when two parties would enter into an agreement, in this case you might have a king of a big kingdom and a king of a smaller kingdom. Uh, the big kingdom is probably more powerful, has more resources, has more status, has more influence in the neck of the woods that you're in. And then the vassal is the smaller, less powerful, less well-resourced king or kingdom or tribe, right? So what would happen in the ancient world is a big, powerful kingdom or king in the form of a, the suzerain, in the role of the suzerain, would enter an agreement with a vassal kingdom or a vassal king or a vassal tribe. Often they might be near each other in the same neck of the woods in the ancient world. And the way this would usually go is the suzerain, the big, powerful, well-resourced kingdom, looks at the vassal king and the vassal kingdom and says, there's actually something that we need from you. For example, if you're the big, really well-resourced kingdom, if you're the rich kingdom, the powerful kingdom, you might have so much livestock that they're eating up all of the pasture lands within your borders. And you look over to your, your little, weak, puny neighbor, and the one thing they have is a lot of grassland. 
So maybe you say, hey, neighbor, become vassal to our suzerain state. And as vassal, we're going to give you protection. We're going to show up if anybody comes to your border and tries to defeat you. We're going to share some resources with you. But in exchange, our cattle are going to eat on your land. Make sense? Suzerain, the big, powerful kingdom, they get something out of it by making an agreement with the smaller kingdom. And the smaller kingdom gets basically the protection of the big kingdom. The big kingdom's got your back, right? It might be a little bit like if the bullying you make an agreement on the playground, right? Uh, both sides have something going on in this. It might be that uh, the big kingdom wants a buffer land between them and another powerful enemy. So you might have a suzerain kingdom that's really big and powerful. Next to them is smaller, weaker kingdom. But next to smaller, weaker kingdom is another big, powerful kingdom. And these two big, powerful kingdoms are sort of competing rivals. And so suzerain kingdom reaches out to vassal kingdom and says, we want you to be like loyal to us. So in the event that a war breaks out, you need to make a commitment to us that you're going to be on our side. But in exchange, if war comes to your border, we've got your back. Everybody track? Give me a big nod if you're hanging with me, okay? So a suzerain-vassal treaty is a common form of ancient agreement between two parties. Now here's what's interesting. When scholars look at the law that begins in Exodus 20, they see indicators of a suzerain-vassal covenant treaty. The format of the text, the way this is written, in the same way that I did with context and content in the Valentine, they can look at this text and say, that's interesting. This document is in the form of a suzerain-vassal treaty. Now, here's what's even more fascinating about that. When you see a suzerain-vassal agreement, anytime you bump into it, the first question you might ask is, what does the suzerain get out of this? Why is the bigger, better, more powerful, more well-resourced kingdom willing to make an agreement with this smaller, weaker, less resourced kingdom? What does the suzerain get out of it? That's always a good question to ask when you see a suzerain and a vassal making treaty with one another. So when you turn to Exodus 20 and that long passage of all the thou shalt and thou shalt nots begins, and you see God in the role of the suzerain making a covenant with Israel in the form of the vassal, the next question you might ask is, what does God get out of this? Why would God do this? Why, why would God, who doesn't need anything, choose to enter into this covenant agreement with the Israelites? Well, a little earlier in the text, we get what seems to be the only indicator that I can find commentators or theologians tapping into. Why, why does God do this? What's at stake for him? Now, again, so in Exodus, remember, here we've got the Israelites, and they're in Egypt as slaves, right? Well, Pharaoh, the king, ends up being sort of maniacal, and Pharaoh is threatened by the Israelites. So Pharaoh actually orders the massacre of a whole, of a whole generation of Israelite children. So you have a maniacal king ordering a massacre, and then the Israelites are going to be led out by Moses. They're going to come up out of Egypt, and then on their way out of Egypt into the Promised Land, they're going to go through the Red Sea, and eventually they're going to go through the Jordan River, and they're going to come up out of the Jordan River into the Promised Land. That's the sort of overall arc of the story here, right? But early in this, when God is telling Moses, hey, Moses, I'm going to send you to liberate the Israelites, this is the precursor to the law, the precursor to the suzerain-vassal agreement, right? God gives us the one indicator we can find of what he could possibly get out of this arrangement. And it shows up in Exodus 4. Say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. What does God get out of this? Does God need pasture lands for his cattle? No. Does God need protection from God's enemies? No. What does God get out of this? The one thing it seems to be is that God has such an excess of love 
toward humanity, that God has such an excess of love within him, an abundance within him, a generosity within him, that he is looking for daughters and sons to love. What does God get out of this? God gets daughters and sons to love. That seems to be the one indicator that we have in this text, that the energy driving God to make this agreement is that he is looking for daughters and sons to love. Now, I understand that the, um, the parenting metaphor like, isn't as easy for everyone, right? Granted, all the parents in the room with their kids right now are exemplary models of perfect love, but some of us in other places have had experiences where the parenting image doesn't like, draw up really great feelings. In fact, for some of us, it's a place of deep and intense wounding. I get that. That can make this metaphor really problematic. But I first of all want to observe that maybe one of the reasons that wounding can go so deep is because the soul knows what a parent is supposed to be. But the, the soul just knows what mother or father ought to mean. If everything were put together in the world the way that we wish it were, if we were all whole the way that we wish we were whole, it's like the soul knows what, what we wish mother or father would be, right? But if that doesn't help, let me um, tell you a story that just reminded me of the, the power of a parental metaphor when it's at its best, right? Uh, so I have a buddy uh, named Ashley. It's a guy named Ashley, and yes, we make fun of him for that. Uh, <laughs> buddy named Ashley. We go way back to college. And my buddy Ashley and I were hanging out a few years ago in my backyard having a bonfire. And we're just kind of catching up on our lives. We were both pretty busy, so we'd see each other every once in a while, and we'd kind of check in with each other on everything and just see how we were doing. And so we talk about work and other things. And then I turned my attention to asking him about his baby boy that he's just had with his wife. I kind of want to know how that's going and how he's doing. And as soon as I offer the question, I kind of regret it. Because, here's the thing, this is, I'm in my 20s, and this is a moment in my life where all of my friends are having babies, like left and right. They're just like popping out everywhere, you know what I mean? So all of my friends are having babies, and all of my friends, the thing that they always want to do is show me pictures of their babies. And so constantly, I have like developed this radar that when a friend starts pulling their phone out of their pocket, I think to myself, do I have it in me to pretend to care about their kids right now? And if I do... <laughs> By the way, all the kids in the room, I love you, but <laughs> do I have it in me to really care about this? And the other problem is all of my friends think that they are amazing photographers, and so they show me these pictures, and they think that their pictures of their kids look like this, but what they don't realize is they actually look like this. And so I have to ask myself, do I have it in me to pretend that that's the best picture of a child I've ever seen? So I'm sitting back there in my backyard with my buddy Ashley, and I ask him about his kid, and as soon as the words come out of my mouth, he reaches for the phone in his back pocket, and I think, here we go again. Except before he shows me a picture of his kid, he shows me that he had something else in mind, which is he's not going to show me a picture. He's going to hit play on an audio file of his baby boy laughing. I know, right? <laughs> And he starts tearing up, and then I start tearing up, and we're just saps in the backyard listening to audio of his baby boy laughing. And that seems to be the image in mind when God has chosen to draw Israel into this covenant with him. I am looking for daughters and sons to love. That there is such an abundance, such an excess of graciousness and generosity and favor and kindness in God, that God is looking for sons and daughters upon whom God can shower that kind of kindness on. Now, maybe you don't believe me yet. Maybe you're kind of stuck on this law thing, and you're like, I don't know, man, but the law is, is that thing, right? The law was the bad news, and then later, Jesus was the loophole, 
Like maybe you've gotten that theology before. And so God is mostly against us. That's still the thing that we think. But let me, let me make my case a little bit further. If the law is all bad news, if the law reveals a God who is mostly against us, then why are the first words of the law what they are? Let me show you the first word of the law that God gives Moses. God spoke all these words, and the first word is, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. What's the first word of the law? Rescue. What's the first word of the law? Grace. What's the first word of the law? Generosity. What's the first word of the law? It's, hey, I'm a father who sees my sons and daughters enslaved, and I'm going to do something about it. So even there in the law, it seems that what the text is telling us is that God has always been for you. That God's posture toward humanity from the beginning of eternity to the end has always been for us, toward us, generous toward us, gracious toward us. This seems to be the word from beginning to end, even if you go to the places that some of us have been told are the very worst parts of the news. Right there in the law, we have a, a the powerful entity that we call God proactively reaching out to these Israelites saying, I actually want to enter into a covenant with you. I want to make a promise to you. And the reason I'm doing it is because I have so much graciousness, so much love to give that I'm looking for daughters and sons to share it with. Now, by the way, if God is for you, if God's overwhelming feelings about you are affection, if, if God looks upon you the way that a, a mother or daughter in their best moments looks upon their sons, or sorry, mother or father looks upon their sons and daughters, if that has been God's posture toward us the whole time, then of course God would care about the ways that we don't live up to who we are. If God re relates to us in, in something like um, a perfect father or mother, then of course God would care about the ways that we destroy ourselves and one another. If God relates to us like a good father or mother, then of course God would care about the way that we hurt our brothers and sisters about a world that we create that abuses our brothers and sisters. Of course God would care about these things. Of course God would use a word like sin to have hard conversations with us because that's exactly what you do when you see your sons and daughters not living up to who they are or destroying themselves or their siblings. Of course that would come out of that, right? But of course we also would expect that that God, that that life, that that presence would, would also be looking to forgive us to redeem all of that somehow, so that we can keep growing up into who we are, right? Um, I, uh, the other year, I was doing my Friday Sabbath practice, which is uh, something I try to be consistent on, which is I kind of shut, shut work down and pull up the, the digital drawbridge, if you will, and sort of carve out a day of um, some sacred space, some silence, some rest, uh, and also like some prayer. And uh, I was, in that season, regularly going to a woods to walk around on, on my day. And it was interesting that like, as I was sort of carving out this sacred space to try to sort of rest in what I really believe about God, I found that something had slowly shifted in my life that I got to a point where the deepest energies I felt were anxious. The, the deepest wrestlings that I had really felt rooted in um, a belief that lived not, not in my mind and my active thoughts so much as that bedrock, that lower sort of place inside you where the things really come from. And somehow what had seeped into that lower, deeper place inside me was fear, nervousness, um, anxiousness. And I found myself like walking through the woods for a number of weeks on those Fridays, 
looking for a way to pray my way out of that, to, to tell myself the truth, if you will, not just like um, cognitively, but looking for something a little more contemplative. And so I, I, I turned uh, in my mind to some scripture. Now, I, what I didn't meditate on was suzerain vassal covenants, although I thought about it. Sometimes I picture myself in the woods with a, like a commentary. <laughs> meditate on the suzerain vassal covenant agreement and its implications for the God-parent relationship. No, I didn't do that. I found myself in my mind turning uh, to a prayer or a poem that also comes from the scriptures, from the same Israelite experience of knowing this God who has been for them. And the prayer that I found myself praying is one that you might know before, but I needed it not sentimentally, but like deeply. Maybe you've heard this. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. That, I, this image like, just knocks me over. The, the thing chasing you isn't a threat. The thing chasing you, following you, tailing you, like a Rottweiler down the alley, like it's gonna sink its teeth into you. The thing chasing you is goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And I found myself needing to just sort of contemplate that so that I could, not just at the level of my conscious thoughts, but at the level of the soul, root myself more deeply in what I actually believe is true, which is that God is for you. And you can trust that ultimate reality which gives life to all of us. Now, um, say that you wanted to take that ancient experience of the Israelites deep in their history, where they found themselves enslaved and then discovered that God is actually for them, liberating them, adopting them, calling them daughters and sons. If you wanted to take that experience in their history and bring it forward into a more personal sort of named moment, say that 2,000 years ago, you're trying to describe how it is that in one person you have seen all of that made manifest. Say that roughly 2,000 years ago you're trying to gather up that experience of, of knowing at the level of the soul the graciousness of God. You're trying to gather that up and bring it in, into describing a person that you have encountered like the way that Jesus is described, how would you do that? Well, in the narrative imagination of the first century, you might, you might gather up all of that Israelite experience and, and wrap it around Jesus. So, like the Israelites, you might describe a moment with a maniacal king, in this case named Herod, who kills all the, all the, all the young ones. Forgive me for the violence of that. But, for example, here in Matthew 2, this is the story of Jesus, which begins with this idea that Herod gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old, and under, and everyone who knew their Bible said, huh, that sounds like that Exodus thing all over again. Or, not just the, the Herod thing, but you might describe an experience of Jesus coming out of Egypt, like the Israelites did, like here in 2.19. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he, this is Joseph, Jesus' father, got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. This is coming up out of Egypt all over again, right? Or, as with the Israelites coming through the Jordan River into their life, 
life in the promised land. You might describe Jesus coming up out of the Jordan River like this. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan River to be baptized by John, and then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. Or, as with Israel, when God speaks to to Moses and said, this is my beloved son, you might give Jesus this experience of belovedness, as in Matthew 3, coming up out of the baptism waters, when a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. In other words, Jesus isn't the exception to the story that God has been telling. He's the locus of it, the center of it. He's the point of it. It's always been about that, but somehow in the experience of Jesus, it's all being gathered together in one life, one person, one moment. Or, as the scriptures go on to say in Ephesians, in more theological language, blessed be God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. He sought you out before the foundation of the world, to be holy and blameless before him in love, to be who you were meant to be. He destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, generosity, that he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us. You hear the words there? Grace, riches, lavished on you. As if to say that somehow in the experience of Jesus, all of that has been gathered up and brought to a point. And as if to say that somehow in the experience of Jesus, you are being invited into the knowledge deep in your bones that God has always been for you. That God's posture toward you has always been grace, generosity, like the best kind of parent who would give anything for you because you are that parent's beloved. Um, this, by the way, is, is, is why baptism is part of this whole conversation for us. The point is, is to somehow find yourself entering into the experience of Jesus, to enter into that full sort of reckoning with your own belovedness, to reckon with the graciousness with which God is moving toward you and to say yes to it somehow. And that's why baptism is coming up. Now, um, today I thought I would take just a minute and address a couple of questions that come up around baptism. So uh, I'm gonna do that and then we're we're pretty much done. Um, But uh, you've got those pieces of paper there that talk about baptism coming up on October 10th and 13th. And we tried to offer you a bit of a summary of what that means for us so that you can think about that or reflect on that and see if that's for you. There's some details on the backside about the mechanics of all of that. Uh, But a couple of questions that have come up for this community about baptism and the way that we approach it. So let's hit these for a minute, okay? Uh, First of all this, what about infant baptism? So this question has come up. Some people in our church uh, come from traditions that practice infant baptism. Some people in our church have been baptized as infants, and others just kind of wonder what to think about all that, right? Well, first of all, let me observe that if the big idea is that you have nothing to prove and nothing to earn, and, and this life that we are being given is all gift, all grace, then infant baptism to me strikes me as a profoundly beautiful enactment of that truth. Because if there's nothing to prove and nothing to earn, then to, to practice that sacrament with babies who've done nothing for the world except poop and diapers, uh, <laughs> what a profoundly theological rich way of enacting this idea that God's posture, it's, it's always been God saying, I'm, I'm here to give this to you. I'm here to move toward you, right? What a beautiful thing. That being said, 
One, an, another thing that we are pressing into as a community is that God can be moving towards you forever, but there's something important about saying yes. Now, I'm not saying that the yes manipulates God or changes something in God, but I think saying yes can change something in us. And so for this community, uh, we don't practice infant baptism, but we invite people who are saying yes willfully and consciously. We invite you to say yes in a way that enacts that in the pool, right? Now, some people will ask, well, what if I was baptized as an infant? Should I get baptized as an adult now that I'm saying yes? And we would say, good question. We're not highly prescriptive in these matters, right? I don't think there's a right answer to that, honestly. I know the arguments on both sides. Um, I would say this. Baptism uh, for, for our church is not just for the people in the pool. It's for everyone. So if you were baptized as a baby, but right now you feel this resounding yes rising up in your spirit, I would say a couple things. You, it would be fine with us if you choose to be baptized as an adult, and we would wrap our arms around you and celebrate that. It would also be totally appropriate for you to do what the church has always done, which is to see the baptism of the few who will be like in the pool as a moment of renewal or commitment for yourself as well. And in fact, when we do baptism, I'm gonna invite everyone who's in this church who has ever said yes at any point in the past, who, who has a moment where they would say, yeah, I, I kind of opted into that whole thing. I'm gonna invite everyone to, to use this moment as a moment of recommitment or renewal of that same sort of decision that we have made before. So whether you choose to be baptized or not, either way, we're gonna invite you into an opportunity to renew your own sort of assent to, the, to, to this invitation, right? Um, so that's the infant baptism question. How about this next one? Why is it immersion? So what we're gonna do at baptism is we're gonna actually rip out part of the stage and we're gonna put a big pool here with gently warmed water. It'd be very nice. That's not a reason to get baptized, but I'm just saying it's not a reason to not get baptized because it'll be fine, right? And, and there'll be two members of our leadership that'll be in the pool with you and we'll kind of have our hands on your shoulders and your back. And when it comes time to baptize you, we'll actually kind of lower you backwards under the water and bring, I promise we'll bring you back up. We practice. Uh, and some people may wonder, like, why is it immersion? Well, for lots of reasons, but mostly to try to sort of be faithful to what this means as we understand it. So there's a lot of layers stacked into baptism. One of them is that you're somehow dying with Jesus to a way of life that wasn't rooted in your own belovedness, and you're being raised up to a, a new life that is. And the idea of being buried and raised, there's something about being buried underwater and, and feeling it in your body, not just being told it in your head, right? So that seems really important. Another idea that gets wrapped into baptism is that you're being washed or cleansed, that all the ways that you haven't lived up to who, lived up to who you are, that somehow they aren't stuck to you, that somehow they don't name you. Somehow, somehow God is like dealing with all of that. And so the idea of like washing, cleansing, it seems really good. Like get your whole body underneath there, right? It seems just true to what, what this is saying to us, right? Now, that being said, if immersion like, doesn't work for you for some reason, maybe you have a physical reason or an anxiety around that that just won't work, we're not sticklers on this. That's not the point for us. So if you want to be baptized but immersion isn't the right thing for you, we would not only be willing, we'd be honored to find a form of baptism that can serve you and what you need from that. So it might be that we sprinkle some water on your head and, and offer the same prayer for you in that form. But that's how we approach the mechanics of it, right? And then these two questions that I think go hand in hand. What if I still have doubts, or what if I don't change overnight? Yeah? Welcome to the club, man. <laughs> the pastor still has some doubts and hasn't changed overnight. So if that's true of me, I would say welcome to the club. And, and actually, more than, more than are those not a problem, I actually think these are two of the most important reasons to be baptized. 
I actually think these are two of the most important reasons to be baptized. Because for the days when you doubt, or for the dark nights that we all walk through, or for the moments when we just can't get it together, there is something so powerful about having a moment in your past when you went under the water, you put a stake in the ground. Or to use a metaphor that I love from a writer named Ian Cron, he talks about how in the 1800s there were people who were setting out on the prairie and they were building houses as they moved west. And how snowstorms, massive blizzards, would sweep across the plains, and perhaps a person living in one of those houses would have to leave the house in the middle of a whiteout blizzard to get firewood or to tend to the livestock that they were caring for. But that sometimes those people, upon leaving their home in the middle of a whiteout blizzard, would be found the next day having frozen to death in the woods because they couldn't find their way back. And Kron says that the sacraments for him are something like the practice that these, that these uh, homesteaders developed, which was to wrap a, a tether, a, a rope around their waist and tie the other end to the front door. So that no matter how lost they got, no matter how, how scary it got out there, or no matter how little they were able to see, they always had a kind of tether calling them back home. And he says that's what the sacraments have been to, to him. And I will say for me, that's also been true. And, Baptism for me occurred fairly young in my life, and I didn't have a clue what a lot of it meant. But I knew, I knew enough of what it meant to say yes to it, and I've found that ever since, it's been a sort of anchor or tether, especially for the days when I have doubts, and especially for the days when I just can't get my act together, and nothing about my life looks worthy of it. Because the whole point, of course, is it's not about being worthy of it, right? Um, so uh, we're not the kind of church that like, tries to sell or push baptism. We are the kind of church that wants to make sure that uh, if, if there's already like a yes rising up in your spirit, we just wanna like clear away the things that feel like they're standing in the way but may not need to, right? Um, the moral of the story, this long sermon about suzerain vassal treaties and whatnot, simple. Don't be restaurant lady. Like, let's, let's, let's get a hold of these misconceptions that we have about the nature of God. God has never been against you. From the beginning to the end, it seems that the thing that you see in Jesus that you like so much, it seems that has always been the case about God. That Jesus is not the exception to the character of God, but the revelation of the character of God. God seems to have such an abundance of generosity in God's spirit that God is simply looking for sons and daughters upon whom he can bestow that kindness. Now, um, rather than preach any longer, we thought maybe better to have a meditation or a reflection, and so uh, Dan and the team are gonna lead us uh, into a little bit of space for that before we go. A couple weeks ago on a Thursday night gathering, a friend of this community, John Tibbs, uh, shared this song that he wrote straight from the pages of Psalm 23. So we'll use these words as a way to reflect as always, if you want to jump in and sing with us, uh, that'd be great. If you want to just sit and reflect, that's great too. You meet me here And I need nothing You have covered me I will not fear I will rest By these waters You've delivered me, I will not fear. Oh, you are with me. Oh, you are with me. 
Angela's going to lead us through uh, the 23rd Psalm. Would you stand as you're able, as we put these words on our lips? We'll join for the part in bold at the end. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You are with me. Oh. together. You are with me. You are always there, always there, always there. You are with me. Just when I need him, Jesus is Yeah. 
Uh, so I, I already kind of referred to this, but I just want to say one more time that, uh, for the whole community, that again, baptism isn't just for those who are like in the water. Uh, it's a moment of renewal and commitment for all of us who in some way or another have found ourselves saying yes. Uh, we show up to celebrate the belovedness of those who are in the pool and to say yes again to our own and for what it means for us to live out the life of God in the world together. So uh, we don't often like say, you gotta be here, but like October 10th and 13th, Thursday or Sunday, that seems like an important day for this family to be who we are. Uh, so we'd love to see everybody here for that. That being said, may you know that God has always been deeply for you. May you know that Jesus is not the exception to God, but the revelation of God. May you know the God who has been hunting the world for beloved daughters and sons and who whispers that same name into your ear today. And may grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you guys. See you soon.